Hello everyone, my name is Bridget Barker and I work for the Community Legal Education Branch of Legal Aid New South Wales. I live in Lismore on the far north coast of New South Wales and on the 28th of February 2022 our town experienced a flood with water levels that exceeded any other previously recorded flood by two metres. The flood has wreaked an incredible level of devastation on this town, making many people homeless. I want to acknowledge that there are many other communities across this region and in other parts of New South Wales who have also experienced similar devastation. We are releasing this extra episode of Renting Matters to give tenants information about their rights and obligations following a natural disaster. I'm joined on this podcast episode today by Brendan Ross from the Northern Rivers Tenants Advice and Advocacy Service and also by Grant Abuthnot, Principal Solicitor of the Tenants Union of New South Wales. I'd like to begin the episode by acknowledging that this episode was recorded on the lands of the Widjibal Wyable people of the Bundjalung Nation and also on the lands of the people of the Eora Nation and to pay my respects to Elders past and present. I'd like to welcome Brendan and Grant to the podcast today. Brendan, could I ask you to introduce yourself and explain your role with the Northern Rivers Tenants Advice and Advocacy Service? Yes, my name is Brendan Ross and I'm the coordinator at the Northern Rivers Tenants Advice and Advocacy Service. Brendan, has your service been receiving many calls since the flood that occurred in the Northern Rivers region on the 28th of February? Yes, so we have received good assistance from the network of tenant services across the state. We do have a overview of the calls coming in, but there's been a significant increase in calls through to the service. Additionally, there's been a lot of tenants attending their disaster recovery centres across the Northern Rivers to receive tenancy advice as well. But yeah, the increase is substantial since the floods on the 28th of February. I should say at this point to give information to people in case they're not already aware that the disaster recovery centres are established after a disaster such as this flood in the Northern Rivers region and they're a place where people who've experienced the flood can speak to lots of services in the one place. Those services might include charities such as St Vincent de Paul, Red Cross and agencies such as Fair Trading, Legal Aid, the Northern Rivers Community Legal Centre, Resilience New South Wales and Services Australia. For the information of our listeners, we have disaster recovery centres opened in Lismore, Ballina, Casino and Kyogle, Mullumbimby, Mwilumba, Evans Head, Grafton and McLean. Grant, I'd like to welcome you to the podcast as well. Would you please introduce yourself and tell us about your role with the Tenants Union? Good morning. Uh, my name's Grant Arbuthnot. I'm the principal solicitor of the Tenants Union. My primary role is giving advice to a network of tenants advocates around the state. Thanks, Grant. I understand that the Tenants Union has also been assisting with fielding calls from tenants following the flooding. Yes, a couple of Tenants Union workers have been answering some calls from people in that region, but most of them have been answered by other advocates around the state we've just been a broker by having a spreadsheet they can find those clients on it's fantastic that the network is able to respond so quickly in these sorts of situations and help people who are obviously in urgent need of help 
I've also asked legal aid solicitors working in the disaster recovery centres what issues tenants have been raising after the flood, and there are many. So it'd be great if we could launch into discussing these issues. So my first question is, after the floodwaters have receded, who has the right to enter the rental premises? Is it the tenant or the landlord or possibly both? The first thing to say is the tenancy contract hasn't ended. So the access rules in the Residential Tenancies Act and in the tenancy agreement are still in place. So unless people are precluded by council orders or police or fire brigade requirements, then the tenant can enter because it's still their premises and the landlord may enter if there is an emergency. So whether or not there's an emergency after the flood has gone down is an open question that I expect people will argue about. Did you have any thoughts about that too, Brendan? I think additionally to that, there are obvious urgent repairs that are required after a natural disaster as well, in which case, if the landlord meets that requirement, they can enter the tenancy to conduct those repairs. Yes, I guess an issue that's been raised through the disaster recovery centres is that some tenants have experienced being prevented from entering the property by the landlord and some tenants have returned to the rental property to find their belongings already brought out of their home and placed on the street or placed in bags, which understandably has caused a fair level of distress for those tenants. So you've spoken about the need for urgent repairs. In this situation, there's often fairly significant damage to a rental property. You know, doors won't close, fittings might have to be removed along with wall linings. Can the tenant ask for those repairs to be done urgently? Yes, they can, but we need to distinguish between urgent repairs in the normal English sense and urgent repairs in the Residential Tenancies Act. Urgent repairs is defined in the Act as a list of discrete types of repairs, a lot of which are going to be covered by what's happened in flooded premises. But some things that are not on that list might also be urgent in a normal usage sense. And it's only for those listed as urgent repairs in the Act that the self-help remedy is available. And that means that the tenants can get stuff done and then be reimbursed for the cost later. So it's very important for people to have good information or get advice before they go spending any money on repairing the landlord's premises. The Tenants' Union has a good fact sheet on repairs and urgent repairs, haven't you? Yes, and there's also one on natural disaster damage. Great. We'll include links to those fact sheets in the show notes for this episode. In terms of clean-up in a tenancy situation, who is responsible for the clean-up after a flooding event? It's a vexed question because the tenant has a contract obligation to keep the premises reasonably clean, but the landlord has an obligation to provide and maintain the premises in reasonable condition. So there may be arguments about whether something is cleaning or repairs. In natural disaster situations, it's not at fault of the landlord or the 
canon. And there is a risk of conflict around who is actually responsible, um, which kind of feeds into other issues as well. But I think the first instance, it's important to get advice if the landlord's asserting that the tenant has an obligation to remedy the cleanup required after the flooding. And I guess also uh, communication is important uh, where possible between the tenant and the landlord to hopefully try and reach some agreement about that. And I know from my experience helping friends who are tenants in this region after the flood that they need to do a certain amount of cleaning in order to access their belongings because of the amount of mud and silt that's left in the premises. It's almost impossible to remove items until you do a certain amount of clean up. If the tenancy isn't going to continue following the flooding, I guess it's still a vexed question as to whether a bond can be returned to a tenant if the landlord doesn't consider the premises have been left in an appropriate state of cleanliness. Fortunately, the Tenancies Act and the contract give the tenant liability for damage to the premises only where it was intentionally or negligently done so that you know somebody crashing a truck into a house isn't the tenant's liability because it wasn't the tenant who did it and the tenant is only going to be liable for flood damage if somehow they have negligently contributed to it. So again, important for tenants to get advice if they're having trouble having their bond returned if the tenancy isn't going to continue following the flood. Yeah, at the commencement of a tenancy, the landlord has an obligation to lodge the bond with the rental bond board, which is part of fair trading. And once a tenancy agreement ceases to be in effect, um, there is a process that's laid out that the tenant can follow to seek return of the bond, even if there's a disagreement with the landlord about whether the bond should be returned or not. Essentially, if there's an ongoing dispute, then the matter can be resolved at the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal, in which case the landlord must demonstrate that they have a valid claim on the bond. And furthermore, they must demonstrate they're only claiming for reasonable costs. So if it comes down to flood cleaning and they're kind of making claims that the tenant's responsible for things that are outside of their control, um, the tenant can certainly explain the circumstances. And that's where it's important as well to make sure they communicate in writing, take photos and document the, um, the condition of the premises as well when the tenancy ceases to be in effect, tenancy agreement. Yeah, I would recommend people have a look at the bond fact sheet on the tenants.org.au website. And we recommend the tenants claim the bond of fair trading if they don't, in a reasonable time, get a satisfactory agreement with the landlord about it. There's really no need for the bond question to drag on for months because the tenant can claim the bond and then the landlord will have to apply to the tribunal. I guess that's an easier path to take for tenants, particularly in these sorts of circumstances. Uh, Of course, there is always the right to go to the tribunal, but I know that people who've just been through this disaster event have limited energy and I can imagine they would hesitate at having to become involved in tribunal proceedings at this moment in time. What about rent? That's also an issue following a disaster event such as the flood. While the tenant can't live in the rental property because the flooding has occurred, are they able to get a reduction in their rent or a rent-free period? This sort of problem has two sorts of rent changes. One is called rent abatement when it's not anybody's fault and the other is called rent reduction, which is where 
the landlord has withdrawn amenity of the premises and it needn't be by a breach, but it usually is, usually failure to repair. So in the case of a flood, the first thing that should happen is rent abatement. And then if the landlord fails to repair in a timely fashion, it might be that there is a rent reduction as well. Really important for tenants to deal with the landlord or agent in writing and get their agreement about rent abatement because the premises are uninhabitable. And if agreement can't be reached, then the matter will end up in the tribunal, either by the tenant applying for an order about abatement or by the landlord claiming that there are rent arrears that the tenant should be paying. So deal in writing and get advice and go to the tribunal if you can't get it sorted out. And Grant, can I just clarify, writing can include an email? Yes, email is fabulous. There's a lot more evidence from email than telephone calls. So even if you have a a telephone conversation, send an email afterwards that says, I refer to our conversation by phone this afternoon and confirm that you said and I said and we agreed. That way you're creating an almost uh, same time written record and um, driving it into the landlord or agent's records as well. That's great advice. Mould is another issue that arises often even before a flood has occurred because of the high levels of moisture in the air, but it arises particularly after a flood. Assuming a tenant wants to return to live in their rental property, what can they do about mould in the property? Yeah, so presuming they're going back into the property after the flood, like the tenant does have some obligations there to mitigate any potential damage. So ensuring there's good ventilation, um, keeping the place dry, all that kind of stuff. But essentially the mould issue following a flood, it's not as a direct result of the tenant breaching their obligations under the agreement. So it is really important to communicate with the landlord in writing as much as possible, just to notify them of the actual mould issue and the severity and also the additional issues around the mould because often it comes from leaking water ingress into the structure of the premises which can be another repair issue that needs to be resolved because you can resolve the mould without resolving the issue that's causing it. So I think in the first instance it's about notifying the landlord of the mould in conjunction with the other repair issues, requesting that they take reasonable steps to remedy within a reasonable time frame and include a deadline to seek early resolution. Um, If they fail to do so, then the tenant can consider taking the next step of seeking repair, necessary repair orders, which they must do within three months of becoming aware of a breach, or they can additionally seek a rent reduction if they can establish the landlord's breach the agreement, and in which case they can seek a rent reduction for withdrawal of amenities, um, the time limit for that is to apply during the tenancy. But obviously, if it's an issue that can't be resolved through negotiation or direct communication with the landlord, it's important to consider, obviously, sooner rather than later. But again, it comes back to seeking advice as early as possible. And just to go back on Grant's point as well, I think seeking early resolution as much as possible through written communication with the landlord is is always an important first step as much as possible. Yeah, I I agree with Brendan. The, The practical steps are clean and ventilate. Landlords will sometimes want to put dehumidifying machinery in the place, and that's fine, but beware that some of those uh, have strong heaters and should not be used unsupervised. They have occasionally caused fires. 
The next uh, issue that I wanted to raise is agreement about moving out or back in. Obviously, following a flood event, the tenant has had to move out. If it's possible and the tenant wants to return, what should they do about getting an agreement with the landlord? The tenancy hasn't terminated until either the tenant provides vacant possession and hands in the keys or if the landlord seeks to terminate, they must provide notice in writing, which they can do essentially asserting that the agreement's been frustrated because the premise is no longer habitable. But if they do put it in writing, that doesn't automatically end the tenancy. They actually have an obligation to get a termination order from the tribunal. So they must apply and actually demonstrate that the premises is not habitable. So until that happens, and if the, if the tenant intends on continuing the tenancy, if the landlord doesn't take that step, then the tenancy agreement is still in effect. So it is always good for the tenant to write to the landlord and notify them that they intend on continuing the agreement. At that point, they can also notify the landlord or seek an agreement with the landlord for the rent, either for a rent abatement or reduction or whatever's um, most appropriate in the circumstances. But yeah, but just to go back to, to Grant's point, the tenancy agreement is still in effect until the proper process has been followed to terminate it. Yes, that's right. The thing that people quite often miss is tenancy agreements only terminate according to the Residential Tenancies Act. Uninhabitability alone does not terminate a tenancy agreement. Not even dropping dead terminates your tenancy agreement. So there's a process of notice and going to the tribunal if the tenant doesn't move out. And it is lawful in New South Wales for a tenant to overstay any notice of termination. Notice alone does not end the contract. That leads into another issue that I wanted to raise the issue of frustration of the agreement, which can happen when a rental premises becomes uninhabitable by a disaster such as a flood. But I understand the Residential Tenancies Act has a process if an agreement is frustrated that would require notice by either party to end the tenancy. Is that correct? Okay. First, a weird common law technicality. Frustration at common law does not end a tenancy contract in New South Wales. There is a section in the Act about uninhabitability or dwellings that cease to be lawful dwellings that is a bit like frustration, but the common law notion of frustration doesn't really apply. It is about habitability and whether the dwelling is still a lawful dwelling. And that's what you would use if a tenant wanted to end the agreement or a landlord wants to end the agreement, then it is that termination notice um, for the premises being unhabitable that either of them can use. Repairs are also an issue and we have touched on this already, but there's often fairly significant damage to a property that requires repair following a flood event. So can the tenant ask for the repairs to be done urgently? The other issue is, Grant, you mentioned that the Act has a specific list of repairs that a tenant can have done and seek reimbursement for. Yes, the urgent repairs list is you know, things like serious roof leak, flooding, things that make the premises uninhabitable or dangerous. So some of those things are going to be available for the self-help remedy where the tenant gets repairs done. But you don't get your money back unless you satisfy a list of conditions about attempting to get the landlord to do the repair first. 
So it is possible for you to do a repair and not be able to prove the conditions and so you don't get your money back. And so we don't recommend this remedy for people very often. There's also another issue that's been raised through the disaster recovery centres, which is the issue of insurance. Some tenants have been stopped from returning to the premises by the landlord because they've been told that they need to wait till an insurance assessor has inspected the premises. Does this issue of insurance prevent a tenant from accessing the premises once they're safe in order to get their belongings? Insurance assessment isn't listed in the Act as a reason for landlord access or any exclusion of the tenant. If the tenancy is still on foot, the tenant therefore has a right to enter there. Now, what you do when you're there may have an effect on the landlord's insurance, and that might be a problem for both landlord and tenant. So it's a good idea to discuss it. You can say, I can go there, it's illegal for you to exclude me, but what is it exactly that I should be aware of in relation to your insurance? That sounds like a very sensible approach. And I suppose also if a tenant does enter the premises to get their belongings, taking photos of the condition of the premises before they start to remove things would be something that would help the landlord in terms of an insurance claim. Yes, that's right. When you end up with formal disputes, it's the evidence that matters. And so if you know there's a likelihood of dispute later, then you live like a paranoid detective and you make lots of evidence by taking photos and writing emails. But there wouldn't be any requirement for a tenant to have to hand their keys back to the landlord while the residential tenancy agreement remains on foot. That's right. It hasn't ended, so the tenant's rights are still there. Reconnection of utilities is another issue that arises following a flooding event. In terms of a tenant's rights, what can they do about asking a landlord to organise reconnection of uh, the essential services such as electricity, plumbing and gas? Yeah, so I guess part of this depends on whether the tenant is able to continue the tenancy and whether it's safe to do so. Generally, the landlord has an obligation under the residential tenancies legislation to ensure that the premises is supplied with electricity or gas and also have adequate plumbing and drainage. If the tenant goes back into the tenancy and either of those facilities aren't connected um, or there's insufficient supply, then it falls back on to notifying the landlord in writing and requesting them to take reasonable steps within a reasonable time frame. But generally speaking, the obligation falls on the landlord to ensure that the supply is not interrupted beyond a reasonable time frame. And I guess too, it comes down to the ability of the landlord to have those services reconnected. I know that in Lismore at the moment, essential energy are making their way through town, slowly um, checking safety and reconnecting area by area where it's possible. If, you know, if a tenant intends on continuing the tenancy agreement, um, after natural disasters like this, there's a whole range of um, repairs or issues that kind of feed into making the premises livable again, or habitable. Arguably, this kind of falls into that as well because it's difficult to live in a premises that doesn't have 
electricity, gas or, or plumbing. So I think it's just about maintaining good communication with your landlord as much as possible, ensuring it's in writing as well, because I think part of it is the tenant keeping updated on what steps are being taken by the landlord um, and what broader processes are happening in terms of reconnecting electricity, gas, or if there's any broader um, issues with plumbing or drainage. Thanks, Brendan. Would tenants have the right to apply to the New South Wales Civil and Administrative Tribunal for compensation in some situations? An example might be if the landlord fails to attend to urgent repairs within a reasonable time frame or Another example that's been raised is where a landlord has handled a tenant's belongings and placed them on the street without the tenant's consent. Okay, so there's two different ideas there. One is breach of the landlord's obligation to repair and maintain, and the other one is probably an access breach and uh, a breach of the tenant's peace, comfort and privacy, perhaps even their quiet enjoyment if they also exclude the tenant from the premises somehow. And yes, action can be taken for compensation for loss caused by breach of the contract. And breach of peace, comfort and privacy um, can also have non-economic loss. So distress and inconvenience, um, as well as material loss. There's going to be some difficulty about the value of things having been inundated. What would be the time frame? that a tenant has to uh, apply to the tribunal for compensation? For all breach of agreement applications, including compensation like that, it is three months from the tenant's knowledge of the problem. So um, if you write a letter of demand with a deadline and the landlord fails in that deadline, then the latest the clock is going to start is um, the day after the deadline. For rent abatement, if you have to go to the tribunal about rent abatement, the time limit is 28 days from the problem arising. So that would be 28 days from the flood. And for rent reduction, you must apply to the tribunal before the tenancy is over. So that's important to be aware of, particularly with uh, abatement. That's a fairly short time frame. Yes. So people should be trying to negotiate agreement about what the abatement is and when it starts and how or when it will end. Do that in writing and give a short deadline for a satisfactory answer and get into the tribunal. The tribunal can extend time limits except the rent reduction one. So it, it may be that some people will be able to get time extensions because there's good reason for uh, the delay. So I guess, again, good suggestion for tenants is to go and get advice rather than think that it's too late for them to do anything about the situation. Yes, don't delay. Talk to your local tenants advice service, so Brendan and his colleagues. Um, You can talk to Fair Trading New South Wales. You can also look at the tenants.org.au website for assistance there. One particular issue I've noticed up here is there's been following the, the flooding people have lost phones or there has been some issues with reception. So it is really important that people know that they can drop into the disaster recovery centres to seek advice or assistance from other services because they try to um, make sure it's as as broad support as possible from day to day. I also just wanted to reiterate the importance of getting early advice if an issue arises, because with the issue of whether the rent should be abated um, for the period that 
the tenant's not able to reside there. Other issues can arise if the landlord is under the impression that the rent should continue and they may assert that the tenant's in arrears or if the tenancy ends and there was a period where the tenant didn't pay rent, it might lead to a bond dispute as well. So I think that just highlights the importance of getting early advice and practical advice as soon as possible because it's not easy what people have been through and there's several issues that can arise. So I think getting contact either by phone with your local tenants advice service or dropping into the DRC. Sorting out rent arrears is, should be a high priority. If there are rent arrears, it's, it's like a metre-long orange flame in the room. Nobody pays attention to anything else so that the tenants' issues um, don't get looked at. Um, sorting out the rent account uh, should be a high priority because it is a distraction. Another issue that arises for tenants following a flood when they've had to move out of the rental property is an issue about uh, communication because if that was their address for receiving notices, they're unlikely to receive them if they've had to live elsewhere. What would your advice be for tenants in terms of updating their address or contact details following a flood event? That's a really good point, Bridget. So I think the first step is to notify the landlord or the agent of the temporary address. If the tenant's not sure or they haven't received correspondence after the notification, if it's safe to do so, they can go and check the mailbox as long as it's safe. Alternatively, they can request correspondence sent through email in the interim. But I think the short answer is notifying the landlord or the agent as soon as practical of their temporary address and the best method of communication in the interim. There's a lot of tenancy agreements now where one of the additional terms is that the parties consent to using email for documents uh, under the Residential Tenancies Act. And so e email is going to be quite useful if that's the case. But as Brendan says, if that's not the case, then get that agreement and use email if possible. I guess using email is practical if you still have your phone, but um, some people may also have lost their phone. However, hopefully they can access email in other ways or possibly through friends in the interim while they're trying to have those sorts of things replaced. Another issue that's been raised through the disaster recovery centres arises for people living in residential land lease communities. What are the rights of both tenants and homeowners living in those communities following a flood? To start with, if a person has a residential tenancy agreement, so, you know, they don't own the dwelling in the residential park and have an agreement with the owner, they have rights under the Residential Tenancies Act. And depending on what the issue is, the same information applies as, you know, as we've kind of discussed around tenants' rights and landlords' obligations. An issue that's been raised through some of the DRCs is that some tenants and homeowners have been refused access to their homes in a residential landlord's community by the park operator. And another issue that's been raised is that the operator has refused to reconnect electricity in those land lease communities. So the question is, what rights do people living in a residential land lease community, whether they're a tenant or a homeowner, have in that situation? Regarding the access issue, I guess the, the priority is the safety um, of people residing in the park. Understandably, like some of those parks are located near bodies of water and the flooding has gone right through. So 
outside of their particular site or where their particular residential tenancy is located, there may be other safety issues. So it's important as much as possible to be aware of any other orders in place, either by council or the fire brigade or anything else um, around whether it's actually safe to access or not. Outside of that, the tenant or the resident does have a right to access their premises or their site. It does depend on the circumstances around why the access is being refused. And it's important to try and communicate directly with the operator to understand why they're saying that. If it's for some unreasonable purpose, then that's when it's really important to get advice and seek practical options about their rights for access. In terms of electricity or refusal to connect electricity, it comes down to, again, whether it's practical to do so. But generally, the park operator has an obligation to ensure that the dwellings are all supplied with electricity. So again, if there's any concerns um, around that, it's important to get advice around the situation and what steps they've got. I think the safety question is primary. If it's safe to go there, then you should express your right to attend the premises for which you have the contract. And then the landlord's obligation to give access to utilities is the next question. I would suggest that people certainly look at the information on the internet, get advice, and it's open for them to make complaints to Fair Trading and um, Fair Trading can contact park operators and help to sort out the problem, whatever's causing it. And I've just realised we haven't said yet that there is a natural disaster damage fact sheet for homeowners in residential parks on the notice board website which is accessible from tenants.org.au. Thanks for that, Grant. They were the main issues that I understand have been raised so far through people working in the disaster recovery centres. Are there any other issues either of you think it's important to raise for tenants following a disaster? I think we've covered the main things. I just thought it would be important to mention before we finish the podcast that understandably people who've experienced a disaster event such as a flood have been through and are continuing to go through a lot of trauma and there are services available for people to access in the community for help with that and also at the disaster recovery centres. There is a lot of help and access to information and advice. I think the disaster recovery centres, they were designed to be set up for six to eight weeks um, to the best of my knowledge. So there is time to go because I think for a lot of tenants um, amongst their their tenants issues or homeowners in parks, um, there's a lot of other things happening. So it's important to note, and I think Grant's point as well, is that a lot of these issues may take a little bit of time to resolve. But it is good to know that there are plenty of ways to get information or advice, either by phone or face-to-face. Okay, well, thanks both Brendan and Grant. I really appreciate you finding the time to help us record this podcast at short notice and so we can get this information out there for tenants who've just been through this flooding event. Thank you for the opportunity, Bridget. I, I hope lots of people listen to it. Thank you, Bridget. That's all for this episode of Renting Matters. Please have a look at the show notes for links to helpful fact sheets that we refer to in the episode and other information on the Tenants Union website, 
tenants.org.au. There is information there for tenants and also for people living in residential land lease communities across New South Wales. I'd like to thank Brendan and Grant for joining me at such short notice to record this podcast and we hope that the information is helpful for tenants who have experienced a disaster. Please look out for another episode we're releasing very soon which will contain more in-depth information for people living in residential land lease communities following a disaster. Don't forget the disaster recovery centres are open across the Northern Rivers region for the next four weeks or so. And if you can get to one, you can get legal advice and other assistance in the one place. Please take care of yourselves.